0: The Hockey Flow. It's a show that covers all the action on ice and off ice, and of course Marco D'Amico and Adam Boucher will lead you up the mountain of hockey. So let's get right into it. My name is AJ Cordero. I am the guy behind the board and sort of throwing the questions and stirring the pot of conversation. And quite conversation we have today. We have a guest, Mitchell Brown, who will be joining us from Elite Prospects. You know him. You love his work, and he's going to give you the inside scoop on what you should be thinking. Although you should probably already be thinking a lot because you've already checked out and Stats.com's analysis. Marco D'Amico has put out his amazing top 62 draft and you can check out all of his work at the hockey expert also on twitter adam boucher can be also found on twitter at really adam b boys let's get right into it quite an action-packed week but let's start off with the awards no we did not win an award we'd like to win an award but we haven't won an award Maybe we'll win an award next episode, but maybe maybe in a year, maybe in a couple of years, but we'll see. Like nice to get an award, but some other people in this world have won awards and particularly the NHL awards, which were announced this week, including the Hart Trophy, Norris, Vezina and Calder Trophies. So I'm going to throw it over to you, Adam, to start this off. Uh, which trophy do you want to start off with?
1: Uh, so I think we should start off with, well, I guess the Hart Trophy, right?
0: Mr. Dreisaitl. on
1: Dreisaitl winning the Hart. Yeah. Uh,
2: Can I just say that I'm not as shocked of Leon Draisaitl winning the heart as I am of Francois Gagnon not even having Nathan McKinnon on his top five ballot like I am sorry how is Nathan McKinnon not a surefire top three heart candidate year after year considering the injuries that happened in Colorado this year to both Landis Cog and Rantanen at various points in the year like this guy continued to shoot at a, like an 100 point pace like I don't know I really don't know. I think that this is more reputation than anything else. I don't know how Leon Dreisidel can win the heart, considering that Connor McDavid is literally his running mate. Like, I don't understand how duos can be considered for the same award when, in reality, one is not more valuable than the other. Um, quite, Quite the opposite. I feel like if Edmonton didn't have both those players, they wouldn't have made it. So, like, give them both the award. But as an individual, I feel like Artemi Panarin was more uh, essential to the success of the new york rangers throughout the season and was up, was about to push them into the playoffs um if he kept going i feel like that was more of anything or hell roman yossi uh deserved a hard consideration in my opinion uh as well for leading and dragging the nashville predators into the playoff race so uh, there were a lot of head-scratchers. Uh, François Gagnon putting JT Miller, who, in my opinion, wasn't even the most valuable player on his own team. Elias Pedersen says hello. Um, other than that, no, uh, you know, I am very, I was very confused at the heart. Very confused. I, I I am every year because, quite frankly, if we look at success measures, game-winning goals, clutch plays, defense, offense, uh, I just don't see it for Dreisaitl. I don't know what you think, Adam. I, I thought I thought Nathan McKinnon was robbed, or Artemi Panarin was robbed.
1: Yeah, I think he should have been considered as well. But uh, no, I think it's it's mostly the point wise, right, that made him win.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, that that's why you have a Ted Lindsay Award, which Drysital also won, right? Because the players get to vote for the most outstanding player. And we already have the Art Ross for the highest scoring player. Like it being the most valuable player does not mean that you're the highest scoring player in the league. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I would assume that if you're on a low scoring team and you're the highest scoring player on the team, it's a no brainer. Uh, but the thing is, that's that wasn't the case with the Oilers. They they were the, the problem for the Oilers was not scoring goals; it was keeping them out of their own net. Yeah. So, on that end, Seidel is uber horrendous i mean five on five defense is just not something that dry saddle cares about whereas if you look at artemi panarin probably the best five on five winger in the league this year uh and nathan mckinnon well you know after the playoffs he just had even though that shouldn't factor into how heart voting works can you really honestly argue that he isn't a top three player in this league right now so i don't know I really don't know, but this—I've always had issues with the fact that reporters vote on this because three quarters of the time, let's be honest with you and everybody here, uh, they don't watch all the games in the league. They—they they go by reputation, they go by what they see in short samples, um, and and then they look at point totals and they—they they kind of come up with their own. Are idea. you saying
0: people who are pressured for deadlines are going to cut corners?
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm pressured for what? deadlines and I don't cut corners. What? Also, Ever. yeah, this is I, I listen, I I know I work in this industry uh cursorily, but I think that one of the things that is uh, people give way too much credit for journalists for is like, oh, there's so deadline. It's like too bad. You got to get it right. If the fact that you're not actually doing exactly. the research is kind of pathetic. Exactly.
2: And, you should be doing the research. And let's be let's also call a spade a spade here. Um, th- They've had how long to vote? How much more time did they have to think about their vote compared? No, no, but compared to previous it's years, that right? is like right? exactly. So, you like if we are saying that scouts will have more time to overanalyze prospects than ever before, why can't why wasn't that the case for journalists whose job for is awards, yeah. to, to vote on an award so prestigious? And you see, like, I have this is my issue with the heart every year. I feel like the last time they got the heart right was Taylor Hall uh, a couple of years ago, however. Let's transition to a trophy. I feel like they got spot on. Connor Halebuck wins the Vesna. The only thing that angered me was Tukarask was second in voting. <laughs> a guy that plays half the games should not be voted the best goalie in the league on any circumstance. Any cir- I would rather give Vasilevsky the second round voting, but thank heavens. That everybody got this one right. Connor Hellebuck was to me a hard candidate because he really kept the Jets in it. Really kept the Jets in it. And you know, I, I you know people will look to his playoffs and be like, well, he couldn't hold the fort. I mean, you lost your number one center and arguably your best scoring winger. Uh, not much a goalie can do. If essentially, uh, he was playing around a team that Carey Price has had the privilege of playing behind in quality. Uh, that is the Jets without Liney and, and, and Shifley. So and you can't they, make miracles.
1: They did you lose know. like half of their decor before the season, right? Exactly. So,
2: exactly. Yeah.
1: For the numbers did, he put up, he, he well deserved for him. Yeah.
2: Honest to God. I think yeah. Connor Hellebuck is, is rising slowly but surely into
0: prestigious status, top ten easily, top five arguably. I mean he earned it, um, right? I mean he came out and said it. He, like, did. he came out and said, I'm going to bounce back. I'm going to win the Vezina. he said it, and like I remember, it was a couple of years back. He so he was uh, runner up, and I can't remember who it was too. I think it was in seventeen eighteen, and yeah, you could tell it was crushing for him. But like he's earned his place here. Six uh, first sh- and yeah, yeah, nobody can say first and shutouts. Nobody can second say second in, uh, in NHL wins, yep. seventh NHL safe percentage, or something like that. It's like he's just been solid, solid. Yep, despite playing behind a poorest defense.
2: So you know, again, I feel like they got that right. Um, Another trophy I feel like they got spot on Finally Was the Norris Trophy And it didn't go to the defenseman With the most amount of points Look at that It went to the defenseman that exhibited the most amount of You know, exceptional overall play Roman Yossi, to me Was the best defenseman And the best offensive weapon on his team He was and the best t-
1: player Scratch yeah, that yeah,
2: just, just overall, mm-hmm. just best player uh, yeah. And this is a team that's paying one, two, three, four, four forwards over $6 million. And he's their best offensive player. So to me, it's just, it goes to show the type of, like, the modern day rover uh, that is Roman Yossi. This guy can just do it all. And I found that he was one of the only reasons why Nashville was even in uh a series versus the Coyotes, I felt like the rest of the Predators didn't show up either. But Roman Yossi just shows up all the time. Consummate pro. And what I loved about um, his communication when he actually was announced as the winner of the trophy is he credited his time with Shea Weber as the reason for his development uh, and being taught the right way uh, and his rapid progression. And he even goes to state that it's an absolute shame that Shea Weber never won this trophy in his prime. I agree on all counts uh, I watched Nashville play a lot uh, You know, in, in the middle of the decade uh, I felt like Roman Yossi exploded Playing next to Shea Weber And once Shea Weber was traded uh, He carried P.K. Subban, in my opinion uh, So, to me, uh, I stand by this I think this is long overdue for Roman Yossi
0: Yeah,
1: well deserved And should we jump to the last one? The Calder
0: Trophy, baby Sure
1: The Calder Trophy Another one they got right, Kiel McCarr.
2: Ah, uh, don't Wait, say that, about Quinn gonna Hughes. Lose, we're going to lose Vancouver fans. <laughs> yeah. We
1: <will. laughs> well,
2: I mean, it was. It was. I mean, like, sorry. I saw that Kale voting McCart breakdown. It's very clear. He he won. Double, yeah. like it's just insane. And look, I understand what people are going to say, but Quinn Hughes was better than Rasmus Dalin. Yeah, like I, I get it. I, really, I do. Uh, Quinn Hughes played on a less jam-packed team than uh, than Kale McCarr. I, I also understand that. Kale McCarr had more primary points. Kale McCarr was more involved overall. I felt like Quinn Hughes benefited greatly from the supporting cast that he also had, which I feel is incredibly underrated. I feel like Elias Pettersson is going to be a kind of player that could be in the same discussion eventually uh, as a Nate McKinnon. But ultimately I feel like Kale McCar impacted the game on more facets, even though if it's a sliver. Uh, and in no way indicative of how the voting worked out, because I don't think that Kale McCarr deserved twice as many first place votes as, as Quinn Hughes. Uh, I thought it would be tighter than that. But again, uh, you're going on reputation, right? Which Kale McCarr built last year in the playoffs. Uh, Quinn Hughes kind of developed it this year and, you know, did take his game, uh, depending on the game, uh, to a certain level. But I felt like Kale McCarr. Uh, was just the kind of player that kept improving and improving and improving. Um, had this had the season continued on, uh, he had a legitimate shot at breaking the rookie scoring record for a defenseman, like uh, like goal scoring record. Uh, so that could have been cool. I believe the record belongs to Brian Leach um, at twenty. So he was he was on his way.
1: Yeah, I have to agree with with uh, everything you said here and. As you said, I think he was just more complete than Quinn Hughes was um, in his own zone and just overall on, on the ice, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's going to be like... Remember that Calder year where it was Ovechkin versus Crosby? Remember that Calder year where it was Liney versus uh, Matthews and I think both scored like 40 goals or, or close to? Like, It's an embarrassment of riches, right? Because then you have like... Years where it's Tyler Myers that wins the rookie of the year, you know, or, or, you you know, it's to me, it's, 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 there's a lot that needs to be redefined on the way the voting is done. And I'm glad I touched on that at the beginning, because having a 25 year old in, in Cuba League in third place uh, makes no sense to me. I feel like there should be an age cutoff because it's less impressive that you score 30 goals after, you know, cooking in the Swiss league for five years. So to me, You know, it's not as impressive as what Nick Suzuki did. It's not as impressive, you know, like also Victor Olofsson did really well. Not as impressive for me personally. But it was the same
1: debate when Panarin came into the league, right?
2: Right. But Panarin was 22 still, right? 22. Makar is turning 22 in like a month, not that far off. 24, 25, you're hitting your prime at that point. You're no longer really a rookie even even from an ELC perspective he jumped in immediately signed one year and is already on his next contract so to me like there should be a in my opinion there should be a barrier uh like the entry level contract itself where at the age of 23 you cannot qualify anymore for the Calder
1: and Something i think like Panarin was 24 25 he's 28 now
2: for real yeah didn't he win it like in 2014 because he won the cup with 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 in, in, 2015. in
1: 2015 2016 so i think he was yeah 24 25 for real yeah
2: i have to go and check that again carry on
0: in any case we should also check up on a series that's also taking place the stanley cup uh yeah that's a thing so first two games are in the books now and we know that the stars won the first one bolts got the second one and the third game is taking place tonight at 8 p.m eastern uh, with the lightning i guess at the stars yeah not that it really matters when everyone's in Edmonton. I'm going to throw it over to Marco. What's your impression so far of the series? Uh, hard fought, hard hitting. Uh, I like what I see.
2: Um, Obviously, I feel like this is a series that Tampa Bay was just built to win. However, again, could have been standing on his head. Um, Just really solid defensive play. Uh, and what I really like is the secondary scoring really coming in and... Uh, pushing through, uh, from what I remember, or from what I remember seeing, I think Joel Pavelski uh, has done. I think he's got ten goals now. If 10 I'm not goals, mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which at thirty-seven years old, like that's that's pretty impressive. That's pre- it's been only done once, uh, I believe, in the last twenty-five years, where a player of his age had that many goals uh, in the playoffs. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how it continues to unfold. But I definitely like the way that Tampa Bay, um, you know, bounced back uh, and really helped the way that uh, helped the way that uh, things are working. So, really, the way that I see it, uh, the next game for me personally, I feel like the next game the is going to be the is going to win the series.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, one thing we're seeing from Dallas a lot is just they're hitting them a lot. They're like Tampa Bay's not going to win it easily.
2: No, they're- exactly. They're hard-hitting.
1: Yeah, you're seeing Point get hit a lot. You're seeing even Palat, Gurd. They're all players that play hard, but they're getting hit a lot. So it's, it won't be easy, but I think Marco's right. Tampa Bay's built to win this year.
2: I I think what's going to make the difference is which defensive core is going to be stronger as a unit. I think ultimately we know that Hedman... I mean, I, I think, yeah, Hedman has tied the scoring record for defenseman with also 10 goals. Um, so you have Hedman on one end, Heiskanen on the other. McDonough backing him up, Ezelundell and John Klingberg backing uh, Heiskanen up. So really, uh, this defensive three-headed kind of monster that we consistently see uh, in successful playoff teams, it's really going to come down to who's owning the puck. Because forward-wise they both have exceptional depth it's really about that defense so whomever's defense and this is going to sound so cheesy because I feel like it's said in every like NHL game ever but whoever's defense is going to be able to transition the puck faster and more efficiently in my honest opinion is going to be the team that will ultimately win game three I think that what we're going to see is a very tight game we're going to see a hard hitting game but I feel like it's going to be a very high tempo game it's not going to be slow like we saw maybe in the first game uh, which fits Dallas's MO, right? If they can slow down the pace, uh, that disadvantages Tampa Bay, but I feel like they're going to go head-to-head uh, with their talent and their speed on both ends. Um, so, to me, the players to look out on both sides, uh, I'd keep a serious eye on Rupe Heinz uh, and Denis Gurionov. Definitely two guys to watch out if they're playing a speed and skill game. Uh, and on Tampa Bay's end, uh, when you need a goal, when you need it in clutch, Anthony Sorelli. Just watch out for Anthony Sorelli. Uh, because I just Oh man. I honestly feel like they're going to have to pay top dollar to retain this guy because he's just a monster. That's that's the way I see it. Um goalie wise though, who do you see coming up on top here? Who do you who do you think is gonna is
0: gonna pull a pull a rabbit out of their hat? So AJ, yeah, I mean, I think, I, Listen, man, six and two in the playoffs, man, that's, that's not some random thing. That's, that's, that's a, a testament to coming back after a loss so that, that, that when you bounce back like that, that kind of confidence, those kinds of X factors really do play in a Stanley Cup series, I think. And I, maybe it's, maybe it's old school to think of it that way, but it does really make a difference when you can show to your team, when you could show up to people on ice that you could eke out those wins when it matters. So, uh, I know everyone here is pulling for the lightning, um. Uh, I guess just oh, I don't know about pulling for, it, but like they're I guess we're all expecting. I don't think I'm pulling for. Yeah, anybody. I think that's I Quite think that's frankly, really what both teams. It's lose. hard to be excited about this series. I'll be straight, like it's hard, like it's like oh, there is there is no past
2: rivalry moment. Any the only thing that Dallas and Tampa Bay have ever done that would result in any form of noteworthy like tidbit. I believe is when, uh, Brad Richards went to the stars.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah,
2: (laughs) there was like a hot minute rivalry. And then Brad Richards wound up in New York, like right after. So like after
1: they won the cup, right? Tampa after Tampa Bay won the cup.
2: Yeah. Just a few years. I think he stayed around for like a year or two, but then yeah, when his contract came up, he he was out. and yeah, all that to say, there's no, there's nothing between these two clubs. You couldn't have picked two clubs with absolutely nothing. (laughs) on the line no precedence nothing so you know heck vegas versus tampa could have been probably something of a hotter ticket or a hotter topic but we'll see ultimately i I feel like you're gonna see some emotion on the ice that will get people involved um however this is usually the problem when it goes east versus west there's it's just like the notion that it's the cup and so you're just kind of watching to see what happens, but there's no
0: prior push towards it. And narrative narrative matters. I mean, like, honestly, hot. how do you sell a narrative like this? It's harder to, right? Well, that's the, that's the league's issue with the East
2: versus West crowd. Like, I don't, it's always going to be a problem. For me, it's always going to be a problem. The notion that, like, conference, when you have conference finals and then the winners of each conference that come out of that final play each other, it is the exact opposite of what the NHL's playoff structure does for the first three rounds the complete opposite i feel like a full especially when it's in the bubble a full 16 team reseed based on points having them play cross conference especially when you're in the bubble who cares you're in the bubble there's two cities what difference does the travel make as long as it's predetermined and then you can really kind of intra play the 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 out like what the not intra conference but the ultra conference rivalries And there are some. Imagine if Montreal played Colorado in a playoff series. Imagine that all the Nordiques fans would be coming out on St. (laughs) Catharines, just kind of like pulling out their flags, even though they're non-existent, and just be like, yeah, go Nordiques, just for a second. Just for a second, they can kind of relive that rivalry. Or like, I don't know, uh, New Jersey playing uh, the LA Kings again, or the New York Rangers playing, you know, you just name it. It, it, There's so many cross western conference rivalries that you can come up with so to me i think that that's something that they can look into uh especially if it's going to be like this for another year um but ultimately no desire to really watch that other than the fact that i need to for my job uh on this podcast and other content uh to see who wins the Which you can vote. all find at ScrippityStats.com
0: That's the place where you can find Marcus Hull his content and also at hold, the, hold the plugs for Mitch man. Don't worry I've got his plugs for for Mitch, ready bro. to go. And now joining us is Mitch Brown. Mitch Brown is a freelance hockey analyst whose work appears in the finest of publications, including Elite Prospects' Ringside. You can catch all of his work on his Twitter at mitch l uh, Mitchell, brown, and, of course, EliteProspects.com. That's also where you can get the 2020 NHL Draft Guide produced by Elite Prospects. You can sign up today for $9 US a month and get access to a wealth of knowledge for your draft pool. Also, Mitch has a Patreon, so go support his work over there as well. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us today on The Hockey Flow. Yeah, thanks for having me
3: on. I'm really excited.
0: I mean, yeah, I just, uh, I want to get right in the thick of it.
2: Um, You know, we've been talking mostly about the draft, so I'm going to kind of deviate from that just for a sec. So throughout the year, there's been a lot of talk about the Habs and the plethora of of prospects they have currently in the NCAA. Um, So I've, you know, we've exchanged on this a little bit, and I absolutely love going through the data myself. Um, So I was just, you know, we were talking about Cole Caulfield uh, early on and how he was a, you know, a five-on-five goal driver and how his expected goals were pretty much the highest within the NCAA. Um, personally speaking though, I would rather turn my attention to the defensemen who am I feel are totally, I would say undervalued right now. Uh, and that would be Jaden Struble and Jordan Harris. Now the last time we spoke uh, you had mentioned that Jaden Struble was one of the better defensemen that you've tracked this year. So I just wanted to maybe discuss What about his game you found intriguing when tracking?
3: So the first thing is his ability to get off the point. Um, He led all the defensemen that I tracked in individual expected goals per 60. And for the most part, you know, generally defensemen, you know, they get a rebound every four games, and that drives it. With Struble, he's getting off the point every single game, firing a lot of shots off. And a lot of them are really high quality. He has this curl and drag wrister that he can pull through and around players that he loves to pull off. It does come at the expense of his playmaking, but I think that's more of a maturity thing. Like he has it in spurts here and there. Uh, It's not going to be a huge issue going forward, I don't think. But the crux of Jaden Struble's game is his transition upside and his physicality. Um, His transition upside through the roof, I think, he was one of the five best defensemen that I tracked and he was a freshman in transition, never gives the puck away, never dumps it out, passes always hit their target. Uh, he's a really explosive skater. He has a few things that he needs to work on, like with route finding and, you know, managing pressure, but he's a far and away net positive. Like a very, very refined player already for someone who jumped directly from prep and not like Minnesota prep, but like lower level prep comparatively. It's just, yeah, it, it was really exceptional. And I mean, the same thing that uh, Mark Bergevin alluded to with like the body of a Greek god, you know, the physicality is is really impressive for his age, and if there's a ton of control in his game, he's not running around and being super reckless for the most part um, he has spurts here and there, but like I think you're looking at a guy who could be a potential number 3-4 defenseman uh, he's a lot closer to, um, to hitting his upside than people think, they're still like this oh, he's risky and so on I don't know, when you have those level of tools, you're going to play Like, that's just the way I see it. When you can do those things, you're going to play. It's just a matter of how good he's going to be.
2: Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I remember when Pergevin made the Greek comment. Man, that was cringe. But um, it was um, from from my viewings, especially like he started, for those that don't know, he started the year with a groin injury um, and kind of played through it for a bit. I think he took a few games off after that to fully heal it and then came back. Uh, and that's really where he went on his offensive tear, uh, pun intended. Um, so that was kind of intriguing to me. The one thing, though, that I, I did find, and, and you touched you touched on it, and I think that that's uh, a worthy discussion, is he was playing high school, I believe in the Massachusetts, like the New England area, uh, and was actually supposed to go to the BCHL for one year uh, and then came in and played in the NCAA. So I think he was born two weeks if he would have been born two weeks later, he would have been a true freshman this year uh, as opposed to just like a regular freshman. He would have been eligible for this draft coming up. Uh, so that, that I still from tra- the tracking data, I found that super impressive. Um, another thing I wanted to discuss, though, was uh, Cole Caulfield uh, and his offensive generation. Now, we saw that he was mostly... A, uh, an expected goal driver. Um, but I just wanted to maybe discuss uh, in the tracking what you thought about the playmaking aspect of his game, because a lot of people see him as solely a goal scorer.
3: Yeah, so it, it kind of comes in on the second half, is where you start seeing the playmaking really take off. He's, he's flashed it before um, with the NTDP, but it's never really been high-level stuff. But there was that weekend series against Arizona State, I think it was February 22nd, where You started seeing this Cole Caulfield who was like,
1: you
3: know, looking off his passing target, pulling sticks out of the lanes, hitting his teammates in stride, stuff like that, starting to find the trailer. And then for the rest of the season, I think there were only two more weekends after that, but he he was doing it really consistently. And so when I was tracking him, he got a consistent boost throughout the season with his individual expected assists and if you just remove like the first half of the season which obviously not exactly the most statistically sound thing to do but if you were to do that he would be like in the 90th percentile amongst playmakers so uh i think it's a really positive development in his game and a big part of that starts with what he's doing in transition um he's just way more involved he's not as passive anymore he's taking control uh and i think depending on where he is but if he goes back to the NCAA I think we're going to see a, a a very dominant second season
2: yep um I would argue and and it's a it's a valid point that you mentioned the each half of this season for for Cole Caulfield so I I, I from watching him myself uh, I feel like he changed his game and I think you can confirm it with the data at this point but there was a tweak or something change in his game after the World Junior Championships. I think that he took those critiques to heart, um, and when they came back to the to, to to play with their team, I think it's at that point that Alex Turcott was also working through an injury. So it was really uh, Cole Caulfield and Dylan Holloway. Uh, that were the the two play drivers, and exactly I was you know exactly where I'm going with this. But Dylan Holloway finished the year I think he had like 10 points in his last 10 games or something of those lines, uh, and a lot of those assists came from plays that either were started uh, or directly caused by Cole Caulfield. Uh, so a lot of people will talk about Cole Caulfield's transition game, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, obviously, we know from a goal scoring perspective. Uh, Cole Caulfield is, is a prolific goal scorer, but I think, and, and this is where I want to kind of bring the question, uh, a lot of his goals come in tight. A lot of his goals come in from like high percentage areas. Uh, and so that's something I wanted to, to, to ask. Is the expected goals coming from Caulfield also a product of where his goals are coming from?
3: Yeah. So for the most part, He's getting rebounds and he's getting cross slot shots. So someone's setting him up with the cross slot pass that, you know, like that goes in like 30 some percent of the time in the NCAA and rebounds go in almost as much from, from point blank range. And those are the shots that he's getting. I would argue that he was unlucky this year as a score, which is, Terrifying when you think about it because he scored it was like 19 goals or something on a team that didn't That was very frustrating to watch offensively He played the second half of the season. No offense given I really like Dylan Holloway and Ty Pelton vice is a good player But he scored with two line mates in the second half who were of significantly lower quality Than he is and he made a lot of things happen individually um and the, I guess the third way that he's generating these chances is from getting himself in the middle in transition. Uh, really no fear to attack the middle. He takes even the slightest of opportunities to cut inside to fire. Um, something that he does really well is he blends his like cuts into the middle with his weight shift for his shot. So defensemen have no idea when it's coming. And goaltenders, like, good luck reading it, especially because it comes off the stick so quickly. And the power, of the placement, the deception—like when he has the puck on his stick, he's never showing the goaltender where the puck is going to go. It's always some different direction, trying to confuse and deceive everyone around him. Like, I don't know. I, I think, I think he's a top three prospect outside the NHL of drafted players. It's really hard to, it's really hard to think of flaws at this point. Like he's, a, he's a super impressive That's player. There's moves that he could make, but like. He's going to be a great player for a long time.
2: I tend to agree. Um, I'm actually thinking of the play you're describing um, where he kind of cuts in through the middle and then will kind of shift his weight left to then release right. Uh, I think he did that a few times actually this year, uh, especially early on. Um, The point about um, above replacement teammates or or, or essentially in regards to him is, is pretty valid when you're looking at other prospects in the NCAA uh, you know if you look at Alex Newhook uh, he was playing with Matt Boldy for a good part of the year and when he exploded so did Alex Newhook Uh, you know Trevor Zegers also had a running mate Uh, you know I felt like Caulfield was kind of looking for that all season so it's actually quite um, it's quite relevant and the unlucky part rings so true pun intended because I've never seen a kid hit that many posts in my life like AJ I am not joking i watched 15 games i counted 32 posts and one game had five posts i could like i just i couldn't believe it so ultimately i i, I agree with everything that was said here but i, I do find it in, intriguing um about the, the the discussion about carrying the puck up the middle because that's one of the critiques i have of dylan holloway is that he doesn't um, he doesn't really do that as much because cole caulfield was doing it and that kind of skews the way that people look at him that's why i don't believe necessarily that dylan holloway is a center uh, necessarily at the next level i think he might be better off as a winger um and that really kind of brings me to my next point and that's about this upcoming draft and this is the bread and butter right now because everybody's eyes are on that um and right now we really want to talk about the hot topics in regards to the draft so for me, and and something I've gotten a lot of flack for, but I feel like more and more people are getting on this board, uh, is the debate between Jake Sanderson and Jamie Drysdale, uh, and who the number one defenseman going out in this draft should be. So um, I saw what you were, I saw what you wrote yesterday, or what was posted earlier on in the week, uh, and I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on that uh, for our listeners. But uh, you know, I've, I honestly think that. Jake Sanderson has more translatable skills, um, but I'd love to see what your breakdown is on this.
3: So, I think if you were looking at translatable skills and transition and defense, you are 100% correct. Um, Jake Sanderson, or I guess Jimmy Drysdale, sorry, one thing that he runs into is passiveness. Um, when you look at his transition game, he's a one play player. So, he looks up the ice, he finds his target, he makes a play. He doesn't adjust to the scenario around him as it unfolds. So it makes him particularly susceptible to forechecking pressure in the OHL. That's a problem going forward. You need to see a guy who's a little bit more aggressive. And I mean, we can talk about, oh, he plays so many minutes, he's so young and so on. But it when you have a full season of, of this and it gets worse throughout the year, you start wondering, okay, maybe it's how he's processing the game. Um, However, there's a lot of really strong off-ice elements of his game that that project, you know, he's going to fix this in time. Um, and I would tend to agree with that. And then defensively, the passiveness is the same thing. Like, you look at him in the neutral zone, he's the master of being there without actually doing anything. Um, he gets his stick in the way, but he's not really one to close out and try to make the stop, whereas Jake Sanderson is literally the best transition defender uh, I've ever tracked so the juxtaposition is is, is pretty incredible um, another interesting thing about Sanderson is that while he's not you know like the most overtly skilled player if you're you know you're looking at skill through like a very basic lens like the way that he handles the puck or you know if he's making three line saucer passes up the middle but He's very effective at what he does, and a very small little detail is that every pass that he makes is into space from the breakout. So his teammates are picking it up. He's kickstarting the offense. He's getting them moving real fast up the ice. Um, just a really, really impressive impressive player all around. Like You don't only give the puck away 22% of your transition plays without being amazing at it, which is the second highest rate I've ever tracked. So another thing in Jake Sanderson's cap here. I think the difficult part is the offense. And I'm, this is not to say that Jake Sanderson lacks offensive skill. Um, he is very talented, and he played on a squad that didn't have a ton of offensive talent to buoy him. And he also scored in the 39th percentile in ice time at five on five for USHL defensemen. So he didn't play a lot. And so his production was kind of hampered by that. And the NTDP just didn't get their players up up in the rush all that much. They didn't get them involved from the point. And so he had like one or two plays a game that were really impressive. You know, he's pulling out spin and, moves on guys yeah. and he's six foot two. He's problem solving plays down low where he's pulling the puck through one defender, looking up, seeing another one closing on him, then hitting Yeah, a I had teammate. a good question for you, Mitch.
1: Um, um, he so you mentioned really the passive, high, uh, high level passes play of Drysdale, where right? He's catching the, puck across the offensive zone. Like Would you say if, if the team's able to develop him to come better across, and then into a better offensive player? Because um, he's still close to a point per game. Drysdale is just. As Overall, a more though, passive defender, more would you say he has a bigger upside than what Sanderson sees might do to a team the if the team is able to develop him the right way? Trailing
3: behind the play. He does also have a little bit more freedom to make those plays, which matters. And for me, I think that little extra playmaking ability from inside the offensive zone is why I give Drysdale the edge. But, like, it is so, so close. Like, I... If a team, if it like if Ottawa picks Sanderson fifth overall, like it's not a bad pick at all. If they pick him over Drysdale, it's not a bad pick.
2: I would that, that's that's essentially where I was going was Ottawa, and and then what what happens after? But Adam, obvious let's go.
3: Yeah, I mean, in the offensive zone, he just sees plays developing that Sanderson doesn't. And so if you can get him to tap into that consistently, and again, that applies to how he stops plays in the rush and how he gets involved in the rush. Like, Jamie Drysdale could be one of the NHL's biggest weapons in joining the rush and getting involved because of his playmaking ability, because of the skating, um, because of how quickly he closes gaps on players. But instead, he just doesn't do it. And, you know, if you can tap into that he could be a legit number one, but I think, I think both of them in, in this case are probably more number twos. And so real tight.
2: Bingo. And, and so that, that was kind of my, my point. Another, I think um, another point was just the, the dual threat offensive ability I find in Jake Sanderson. Um, his shot is, I find incredibly underrated that it'd be his slap shot, that it be uh, his wrist shot, which is so good for tips. Um, but i don't see that in drysdale's game I, I really don't feel like his shooting mechanics are are necessarily there uh in comparison to a guy like jake sanderson so whenever I'm, I'm kind of brought up the notion of well Drysdale's the better offensive player my mind always kind of goes to that like maybe in the o he is but as they continue to rise throughout ranks there's always this notion that will that kind of will their offensive tools translate at the next level and that's where i kind of get intrigued with sanderson because yes he's not essentially as good a playmaker as drysdale is but i feel like he's a better shooter um than drysdale is uh and the gap between the two uh, in my opinion i guess kind of defer the possibility of one being necessarily better than the other offensively although i will state that i definitely agree drysdale's potential to be that defenseman is definitely there yeah. uh to, to be the better offensive defenseman but I, I guess with what we're seeing right now and the, and, and the way things are going, um, would you say that uh, that Sanderson's age being one of the younger players in this draft also kind of weighs in on the on the debate for some people? yeah i would say that i would say that there are a lot of people who abide by that i know that there are
3: teams who are very into that like if you look at some of these teams drafting records you will you will notice some trends here (laughs) but uh, most research um that we've seen in the past year or so suggests that if you're born after january like you're not a late birthday there's not really a huge difference in how you develop and stuff like that um whether you're like september 14th or january 1st the difference is very very small you're more looking for the late birthdays but i mean absolutely i will i will definitely buy the physical potential thing like if you look at if you look at sanderson i mean he's a bigger player um he's already an equally impressive straight line skater it's just a matter of getting the agility and one thing that's very impressive about sanderson is how good of a skater he is despite not being like the most physically strong player Um, when I project skating, you know, there are players who are very physically developed but have mechanical flaws. So the potential to improve the skating is a little bit more limited. Like, I guess a good example of this would be Bobby Brink versus, I don't know, Emil Andre or Zion Niebeck, right? Like Andre Niebeck are two, like, very physically mature players who have mechanically flawed strides. They're going to have a much harder time fixing their skating than Bobby Brink, who, you know, his body was bending in all sorts of ways. Like, it was just really awkward and uncomfortable to watch. And it was largely because of his lack of strength. He goes to Denver, of course, and he gets stronger, and he still has massive skating flaws because of his lack of ankle strength. But the stride improved a ton just by an off-season of lifting weights. And so Sanderson has a ton of room to grow because you see those inconsistencies in his stride. It can, it can get so much better.
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean i um i remember because you know we we have to talk about where he's going so I, I believe he's going to is it notre dame no north dakota yes north dakota sorry it was nd in my mind but i kept mixing the two so north dakota uh there's shane pinto and i believe also bernard docker there as well for the Sens. and i remember bernard docker the one of the big things was skating and explosivity in skating uh, and just watching him for the last two years you know you it's night and day he's he's really been able to Kind of push that so one of the things a lot of people are talking about is the growth potential in sanderson and the fact that he'd be going to the ncaa where he'd have a lot more time to focus on physical training throughout the year uh, as opposed to someone a major junior paying 67 games a year um, do you think that that possibly weighs in on the way people will view where they would rank a guy like sanderson versus drysdale
3: um, it would depend on the evaluator like some teams would be very like they're very focused on NCA development whereas other teams you know they, they just want to get the guy to the AHL and work on them himself, on the work on him themselves I think UND is probably like the perfect fit for Sanderson I wrote an article on it yeah. it's just like this team loves to get their defenseman off the point and make plays they're a really aggressive neutral zone stopping team uh, so you have two of his best attributes in a system where they're going to be magnified. Like he's, he's going to slide in there and be perfectly fine. The transition is the only issue. Like UND's defensemen aren't allowed to make plays in transition unless they're joining the rush, which is very unfortunate, but you can't like, what are you going to do if you're the coaching staff at UND? Oh, Jake, you can't use the middle of the ice. No, you're not going to right. do that. You're going to tell him, Jake, use the middle of the ice, do your thing. And everyone else will, will have to abide by the system. Like he's just too good to take that away from this game. Um, and UNG, I mean, like, they're a good team. They're competitive. They have a proven track record of developing players. Um, it, it's going to be, it's going to be really, really, really interesting to watch him. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he's like a top ten defenseman in the NCAA whenever it returns to action. And he's just like a one and done straight into the NHL guy. Like, I think that's probably the outcome here.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's that's also what I was talking to a, a lot of people about. Is that I I really don't foresee it. Being too long a, a stint, especially if he gets taken by Ottawa, I feel like if he gets taken by Ottawa, he could pretty much either go straight to Belleville the year after or, or kind of just right onto the third pair to start and work his way up. But I feel like it would be a less less of a pressure environment because he'd be playing behind a guy like Thomas Shabbat on the first pair. So literally a no stress environment for him to just come up and and grow. And he would probably already have that chemistry with Bernard Docker as well. Who's on the right side? So, it, it, I don't know. There's, there's so many things that point to Ottawa zoning in on Sanderson if they do get their center, uh, and 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 Raymond is gone, that it just made too much sense to me. So I keep thinking of it. Um, for the uh, Montreal Canadiens fans here, um, the big topic is, oh, they slid from ninth to 16th. Uh, they're going to lose value at this point. There's no way they're going to be able to get a player that's as good as they would have been at nine what i like to remind people is that drafts don't play out like rankings uh there will be reaches in this draft specifically because of the 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 incomplete data that we have uh, and a lot of the risers that we might see uh with the resuming european leagues um so right now i guess my question to you is i know you're a big fan of maverick bork um from what i've been able to read um other players that they've been talking about are dawson mercer um and then you know, the the big red flag in Montreal would always be Hendricks Lapierre. Um, so I just out of the possible players in the thirteen to twenty range, I would say, say, um, what do you think, or what what kind of player do you think people are sleeping on uh, that could be available at sixteen?
3: Um, Public wise, no one is sleeping on him. But NHL teams kind of are. Seth Jarvis. Uh, he. He's going at 15 if he's available. I'm just like, like I'll put money yeah. down on that. But he would be a great fit for Montreal. Um, with regards to the three Q players, I honestly don't think Lapierre is an option there. Um, uh, he's He had one good tournament. Like, I've watched... this. This sounds horrible, but I've watched almost every game you know, he's played in the queue unfortunately all 80 of them yeah it's been yeah it, it was it was it's been a rough year trying to figure out what to make of him and there's just not like i like i like two things that he does the first thing is lane deception so the way that he uses crossovers with independent hands to you know confuse defensemen and to get them to move one way and then he goes the other and i like his ability to make plays with pace you know the way that he finds teammates through layers and stuff the issue is that he's always working to the outside And when he gets the puck inside the offensive zone, he's only predisposed to staying on the perimeter. And the dude's had three concussions. Like, at what point do you expect him to get more aggressive driving the middle? Like, I I just think that's kind of an unrealistic thing. If you value that player and you think that he's going to improve his skating so he can better create those speed advantages in the neutral zone and he can create as a playmaker from the perimeter, then by all means, he would be a great pick there because he fits that bill but I just don't see it. I think my favorite option here is probably Maverick Bork. He's kind of like the antithesis of Hendricks Lapierre in a lot of different ways. He's more of like a lower pace guy, although it's improving. Uh, He's more about playing on the inside, you know, taking any little advantage that he can get on players and exploiting it. Uh, He's a really good hard skill guy so the way that he likes to uh use his body to establish a distance from players he likes to get them on his back and then take the puck into the middle and find teammates Uh, i wrote an article on it breaking down his manipulation and deception so basically he has this sort of gravitational pull that comes from his physicality the way that you know he separates from players with a lack of you know outright speed Um, and then he draws in the extra defender and that's something that he's been coached to do and that's not something that happens. Like like this is that's a layer exploiting the gravitational pull and manipulating defensemen, drawing attention and having the skill to connect with players is, is a skill that you either have or you don't. It's very, very rare for players to learn that. And for him to go from a dude who was just, you know, scoring two touch goals as a rookie to becoming one of the Q's top playmakers is is truly astounding. And I talked to his coach about it, and his coach was like, Yeah, this this just doesn't happen. Like we, we taught him it, and it's amazing how far it's come. And with regards to <laughs> Dawson Mercer, he's a he's a really good handler, really deceptive. Might have the best hands in the draft class, to be honest. At least in terms of translatability for now. Maybe Stutzla gets there if he improves the way that he sets up his dekes. But um, you know, he's never looking where he's going. He's always baiting sticks, baiting bodies. You know, everyone's just like falling into him, and he's just ripping around them. Even though he's lumbering around the ice, um, killer shot can do a lot as a playmaker i think it's really really improved like coming into the year i was like dawson mercer he makes two plays a game he dangles someone and then he shoots and then he makes a stop on the defensive end and then you know pretty much from day one he was just killing players with he was just killing teams with his playmaking um it's not a bork level skill but it is very good like i don't think you can go wrong with having um mercer or bork uh, at 16, but the guy who I wouldn't be surprised if it is is um, Swedish defenseman Helja Granz. I, I I love his game. I have a draft answered
2: game. my second question. Yeah,
3: I have a draft right coming today, and I have him at 16th. And like I almost put him at 14th. I think. So, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think he's an exceptional transition player. Uh, he has a few wonkiness is to a stride like the way that he recovers his feet underneath him like to bring the extending leg back under he kind of like kicks it up and it's kind of like this looping arcing motion instead of staying parallel to the ice he's a bit wobbly but i think that's mostly like a, a lack of strength thing but he's so involved getting in the rush he's so manipulative he does the same things that bork does offensively but in transition you know he sucks in the in the f1 he looks off the f2 and the f3 and just like he just destroys teams you watch in the shl and he's, like, he's throwing, like, 30-foot hook passes through three guys for the breakout. Like, this is unreal. This is a 17-year-old defenseman. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's really enjoyable. The offense is a major question, though. The dude's content just to stand in the corner and fire away shots for no reason. Um, and defensively, he's got, he's kind of just there. You know, he lacks physical. Yeah. He lacks the ability to close out on guys and make plays. I think a big part of that is, like, his lack of strength. But he's also a bit unaware and inattentive at times. Um, but he would be a really, really good fit for a team that could use another right-shot defenseman who loves to get up in the play and make things happen. And if we've seen one thing for Montreal over the years is that they're not afraid to take guys who they believe in having tools and progressing. Like, I think Romano is a really good example of this. Explosive dude, physicality. Does he have any offense or transition upside? Didn't show it in the MHL. But they believed that he would figure it out with maturity. And he goes to the KHL, and you know what? In the second half of this season, he was making a lot of plays for a guy who was only playing ten minutes a game. And I think with Bronze, you might see something a little bit similar in his development.
2: I think you're seeing it now, though. I th- he had a pretty solid preseason, um, and I, had, you know, I saw him on I think it was Saturday or Sunday, and still, like I, more and more, like I put him. I did a mock draft, and I actually put him at twenty uh with new jersey's third first rounder um and i think he's right there I th- and, and th- that was kind of my point right now we're kind of talking drysdale sanderson uh and then the talk after that tier is really like ghoul schneider which not everyone agrees with but does do you think that grands kind of fits within that second tier or is he even above one of those two defensemen in your estimation?
3: Yeah, he's the third best defenseman in the draft class pretty clearly in my in my thoughts. Like, I really like Gooley. I think Schneider's probably number five. So if you're a team that's like, oh, we don't trust our development staff, uh, you take him because he's number five. With gooly I think there's a little bit more upside. You know he's got better hands. He tries to make more plays offensively. He's a better shooter. He gets pucks through. 70% of his shots this year were on net. Really impressive. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the decision-making isn't there. He relies on two very specific set plays to create any offense, and that is whatever he does in the power play, and this, like, sort of handoff play where he gets and then comes down the boards and tries to fire. And that's kind of the extent of his offensive ability. He'll get it in the NHL, but he's not going to be a guy who, you know, you look at all those charts and he's checking out really high offensively. That's not going to be his game. Uh, Ronz can get there. But, yeah, I I think Ronz is, like, is pretty clearly in a class of his own because he's better in transition than both of those guys. He can actually skate backwards, unlike Poirier. Um He can make plays uh, defensively and offensively. It's just a matter of you know getting him to be a lot more assertive. Even in the super elite, he wasn't particularly assertive, and that needs to change fast.
2: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a defenseman that's caught my eye. Um... There's one thing you mentioned before, and I'd, I'd like to circle back to it if I can, if I can, um, is Se- if Seth Jarvis is available at 15, he's gone at 15. So I, I kind of like <laughs> I kind of like that comment. Um, so the right now, everybody's kind of under the impression that with a flat cap and the way that the organizational breakdown works for the Leafs, that it would be an ideal pick for them to, to pick a right shot defenseman at this point, because. Schneider could be ready within a year or two. Granz could possibly be ready within within two years as well. Um, but no, I, I I agree with you that I feel like if, if there's a high-end forward, and we always know that there will be, because there's always going to be a reach for a center or a defenseman at this point in the draft, that the Leafs could very much consider a guy like Seth Jarvis. So um, why are people sleeping on Seth Jarvis, even though it seems that the majority of people have him ranked in the top 10?
3: So this is, this is kind of a crazy one. It's not my own reporting. It's, uh, I believe it's for, I believe it's JD Burke's reporting or someone else at the yeah. side but there is a team that has them outside of the first round entirely. And there are more that have him this late first from what I've been told. Um, a lot of the skepticism comes from, you know, he relies on a pace advantage to create and he's a good skater, not a great skater. Um, whatever my opinion is, is irrelevant to this, but, um, will he be able to take advantage of defensemen the same way that he does in junior in the NHL? And I think that's a legitimate concern. And the other thing is that he relies on playing on the inside, you know, playing the body on guys, establishing body positioning, making plays under pressure. And that's really commendable. It's probably the thing that I love about his game the most, but how will that hold up when he's, you know, a smaller player um, in the NHL? And I think that's also probably a, probably a legitimate concern like he's maybe he just gets worn down a lot faster but i mean if you're looking for a guy who's going to be you know win every foot race by sheer virtue of will grab a pile of retrievals weaponize those retrievals into in, into point blank chances for his teammates can score goals from the perimeter can score goals from the inside can use that hendrix lapier lane deception to actually get to the middle in transition unlike lapier then he's your guy i mean when we look at the Leafs, we often think, you know, they need they need better defensemen. Their, their defense is a defenseman issue. Their defense is very much a forward issue as well. Like Austin Matthews improved a lot. There's no disputing that Austin Matthews had a good defensive growth oh, yeah. But you know, there's still a low level of involvement. I mean, look at Kapnan. Kapnan, in terms of like how he's going to get involved defensively, is is sometimes a bit of an addition by subtraction just because he's so inconsistent in the way that he brings that energy and the way that he gets involved in the back check the roots that he takes um and Seth the jarvis you know uh he kind of brings this you know sort of zach hyman-esque in a much smaller frame ability to get those loose pucks you know the adherence to the fundamentals um He's going to bring that energy and I think that he could make a defensive impact on a Leafs team that desperately needs it, you know, just by virtue of being way more disciplined and way more dedicated to the defensive end than some of their forwards are. Of course, Helya Grounds would be a great, great, great player there. Like if they take Braden Schneider, I will be shocked. I will be shocked I, Braden that, Schneider is the guy.
2: Exactly. I've, I've heard that Braden Schneider has interviewed well and that some teams have him higher than others, but on a pure talent perspective, like, I do hold Grands higher because the potential is higher, um, and and yes, I don't think that uh, Kyle, or what we've seen from Kyle Dubis's drafting strategy, uh, they don't necessarily want the player that's going to be impactful today. Uh, they're looking for the best overall player going forward, which you would assume most people do. But oh well, um, one thing that I was discussing with uh, leaf fans at the time as well uh, was the possibility of adding more muscle or, or a bigger forward uh, with a little bit more translatability that could either play center or wing and we talked about it a little bit before uh, Dylan Holloway potentially uh, and there's been a lot of discussions into his potential fit uh, and what kind of a team would be looking at you know his abilities. And I thought the Leafs would definitely be a team that would consider him, based on the fact that he is already quite physically mature and plays a sound kind of game. He's a very responsible player already uh, in the NCAA. Would that be a little bit too early in your estimation? No, I don't think so. It's really fluid from like from you know like the Jarvis
3: Bork, Mercer, Quinn kind of players. Like it's really fluid from there all the way down to like the Noel Gundlers and uh, and Connor Zaires. You know they're. If you pick him there, it's because you really believe that what you saw in the NCAA is like only the beginning of it. Like you mentioned that he's not driving plays up the middle, which is true. But when you look at the data, he's using the dot line a lot. So he's threatening to drive the middle. It's getting him to commit to drive in the middle. Um, and you look at his passing as well. Like he really showed off some good stuff hitting uh, Cole Caulfield in particular. Find the trailer to plays like one thing that Alex Turcotte God love him. He's a great player does not do. Is slow down and find the trailer this guy is going wide on everyone every single time and then he's going to find you and he just didn't work with Cole unfortunately uh but Hall always got a lot more patience you know he can get to the front of the net he can get the he can get those sticks on loose pucks he's got good timing uh he's always free always available and of course he has the physicality element to his game that would help any team not just the Leafs um I think he'd be a fine pick wouldn't be my pick there but I definitely see an argument for it, and if they walk away with Dylan Holloway, they're getting a guy who could be a top nine forward in two years' time and make a decent impact.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree. I, like I said, I I saw it. Um, I like the fact that you brought up the Jarvis point because I I thought that there's a serious possibility that he could slide all the way to sixteen at this point. Um, I think the hottest debate on Twitter the last week. And I know your colleagues also got into it. I know Cam was laughing about it a lot. Uh, was uh, you know by a lot of people are looking at Byfield uh, and really souring on him. I know you're laughing because I'm. <laughs> I've I've been watching Byfield for two years, and I don't think the World Junior Championships are really what's going to make me not like a player I've loved for the other 120 games of his career uh, in the OHL. But I have to ask the question: uh, Would it be a disastrous thing? to pass on, on Quentin Byfield at picks two and three?
3: At two, probably not. At three, it would just be asinine. Like, like you're getting a player who has the highest or second highest upside in the draft class. Um, we can talk about, oh, he's big, and he's just ragdolling these fools all game long. You know, won't be able to do that in the NHL. He's 6'4", 215 pounds. How many players are that big in the NHL? It's a joke. He's the same thing. Like, like he... He needs to improve the way that he gets his body oriented. Like he doesn't sit deep enough into a stride at his hips. He tends to bend his torso really high or really sharply. And so when he goes into puck battles, he's at a disadvantage because he has to turn his body upwards first. And you know, players can get under him and leverage him. And that if he figures that out, if he, you know, starts loading his stride correctly and fixing his orientation with his hips. You know, he's going to do the same thing. And he's such a good playmaker. He's such a good handler. He's such a good transition player that he's going to score. I mean, the big thing for me is, you know, how, is he, how does he play in, play in space? You know, he has a weak off-puck offensive game. Uh, he has some difficulty relocating. He tends to pass and then just look and watch instead of, you know, driving the middle or for more complex plays, like trying to make time movement into the slot with the player around him. He's so used to being the puck dominant force that he hasn't figured out how to play without it. Um, but you know, you can teach that stuff and, and he's, and even if he's not going to be like a 40 goal guy, Oh look, we only have a 25 goal, 45 assist center who plays defense overwhelms everyone in transition and wins every puck battle imaginable. How terrible is that? No, no. You take him like, this is this this is just some serious galaxy braining stuff going on here. People look at like, oh, he didn't score in two games against London or whatever crap it was. Oh, therefore he must not be. away. Right, right. Like, what a joke. He's going to be like, it's it's ridiculous. People are people are overthinking this and people are fixating too much on like translatable skills without knowing what these translatable skills look like. You know, I I there I'm I'm all for you know being creative and having you know really hot take opinions for for the draft. But Quentin Byfield, like outside of the top three, is just one that doesn't make sense to me.
2: Yeah. I, I, I kind of I personally hold him in higher esteem than than Stutzla because I, I feel like he's actually a more of a dual threat player than 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 Stutzla is. Yeah. Um one of the things one of the things I, I wanted to discuss was uh to, speaking of prospect slander, um there was a lot of slander in regards to Mason, uh, to Mason, no, Lucas Raymond uh, over the last year uh, for those that don't actually follow the SHL and understand the context um, of for usage, usage. Uh, but I feel like he's putting those naysayers to sleep over the last month or so. So my question would be, uh, seeing as he's kind of proving his doubters wrong, even though I don't believe that there's really much doubt in, in anyone's mind at this point. Is he a legitimate selection at the fourth overall pick for Stevie Y, who we know to make the wildest of selections?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think he's the third best player in the draft class. And I like, I don't think it's particularly close for me. Like, I really like Rossi. I really like Perfetti. I really like Stutzla. But I think that with Raymond, you know, you get the pace of Stutzla that overwhelms players in a more refined package. Then you don't have the same skating issues that you have with Perfetti. And then in the case of Ross, you know, he's he's a little bit more aggressive making plays. He's a better goal scorer. He's got a better shot in tight. Uh, he has some range to his game. You know, he can create from the perimeter. Um, uh, I, you know, like I think I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty clear he's the third best player in the class, and it's been that way the entire year. It's just that people, you know, it's. I understand why people have Why people soured on him. You know, there's a lot more uncertainty when you don't have this sort of proof of concept in their draft year of how good they can be. He had flashes, yeah. absolutely, but it wasn't a consistent thing. And I think people probably under underestimated his World Juniors as well. Um, I didn't watch all the World Juniors, but I thought he was very good and he created a lot. There were a few moments where you're like, okay, I, Raymond needs to be a little bit more engaged. He needs to make a better play here. But for the most part, I think he fits the... Fits the bill of, you know, a top-line forward. I don't know if he'll be an above-average top-line forward, but he's going to be a a great player for a very, very long time. And whatever team ends up with him, presumably outside of the top three at this point, is going to have a very high-value selection, shockingly, for a top-five pick or wherever he goes. Like, hearing some talks about, like, eighth or ninth, which is just, which is, oh, my God, that would be larceny if you pull that off.
2: Yeah, well, I see a lot of people putting him at ten. And getting I, it kind of gets me sad. Um, there's, I had one more question, then we'll flip it over to to Adam. But um, there's been a lot, a lot of talk. Like I feel like the player during the pause that has exploded the most up, up everyone's rankings uh, is Tristan Robbins. And I know, right? Like I, again, it cracks me up because like he's he's kind of been there for me all year, but it's. I guess the pause has allowed some players to really spike up the draft rankings. Uh, And that's one of the people that a lot of folks are starting to put, not only in the first round, but in the top 20. Uh, So I just, I wanted to get maybe a little bit more of your opinion on the player, um, seeing as it's one that not many people were conditioned to know about as soon, as early as April.
3: I think, I think Robbins is one of those guys who's just really easy to love, right Like he's, he's a tiny dude who smokes people like you try to hit, you try to hit him and they just fly off and it's like watching Jake for 10 with the Calgary Hitman. It's hilarious. Um, he went from being like a, a decentish fourth liner to exploding in his draft year. Um, just an easy player to appreciate. I don't think the skill level is, is super high. like you look at those curl and drag wristers that he scores on. They're not really too layered or, or deceptive. Like, he can pull it around defenders and make goaltenders look silly, but he just doesn't have the same sort of deception with the puck on his blade that you look at guys who consistently score on that play have. Um, his playmaking ability, very questionable sometimes. Um, it's, I mean, this guy went from struggling to shoot the puck to having a killer shot. So maybe there's an ability to add the playmaking. And I've definitely seen... A little bit of improvement there throughout the season. You know, he has some crazy plays where he pulls a defenseman stick out of a the lane, and then hits them with a the pass. But he doesn't really look to pass, and he doesn't really put himself in position to pass. You know, he's always setting up to shoot, always, 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 and then that kind of hurts his ability to make plays in transition as well. Um, when you look at my tracking data, he's a pretty average playmaker and transition player for those reasons. Uh, he's a really easy player to love and I, I respect the people that have him as high as they do. I understand it.
1: And I just think if that we go to top it off me, uh, with the draft talk, have if, the same level if you go outside the first round, would you say you have like, someone
3: I really liked him. M-
1: maybe mid-round so two, beginning, beginning round two that you're very high on that on you would board. praise outside And then we made one where we
3: boosted him up 30 because I watched 10 more games and I got a couple other people to circle back on him for me. And that's probably about as high as he'll go. Like I think he's in the fifties right now and I think yeah. he'd be a good pick there. I just don't see the upside and the, the certainty with him, especially continuing the offense is a little bit on the lower end of the scale for me. Um, I think he'll be a good player, but I think if we're talking like his 50th percentile outcomes, like what is he most likely in the NHL? He's probably a dude who goes out there, hits people and, you know, gets the occasional goal on your fourth line. Like his 90th percentile outcome is becoming, you know, a, an above average top top nine winger, which is still, a,
2: which is still a good yeah. player,
3: but not someone who I want to take inside the top, like 40 of this draft class. Makes sense. Yeah, there are three guys that come to mind here. Uh, There's Wyatt Kaiser, who's sort of a mobile, do-it-all defenseman. Um, You know, he needs a lot of tweaks. He wasn't great in the USHL, although he was quite solid at times. Uh, But the upside there is really high. Just needs to learn how to shoot properly. Um, Brock Faber, uh, offense very limited, but he's one of those guys, because of how solid he is in transition, because of his exceptional lateral mobility, the way that he closes space, the way that he makes defensive stops, he could be one of those guys who teams, who fans of teams are going to be like, oh, I don't want to pick this guy. And then five years down the line, he's a number four who has killer underlying metrics. And then a personal favorite of um, mine is uh, Ozzy yeah, Black
1: I want to ask he's you, who, who's, quite similar uh, who's to taking Tristan game Robbins three tonight? LA,
3: like the smaller dude who plays fast and hits hard. Uh, but he's a, a no much, much more versatile offensive player. Uh, really, really advanced playmaking at times. His skating needs a few tweaks. He's a bit of a wide recovery guy who doesn't fully p- extend his strides. He doesn't really have the the proper toe snap and recovery to maximize what he's putting into his stride. But all around a really interesting player. And uh, upon further research, I came away yeah. more impressed with his shooting and goal scoring upside than I did this year. <laughs> I watched some of the 18-19 games back and he seemed to have more of like a nose for the net and off time, off puck timing and movement ability to finish those plays off. And so I think we're just starting to see the best of what Aussie can bring. I think he's got top nine upside quite clearly.
2: I love Aussie. By the way, I, I've been watching a lot of the WHL specifically for him, so I, I tend to agree on that. Adam, did you have another one? All right.
3: Oh, I'm not gonna lie. I have not watched any NHL playoffs this year. I I I've
1: watched my
3: like game. Yeah, well, I've been working so much with the draft stuff. Like, I have seven articles that I'm publishing between now and and March or March. Yeah, I'm I'm way out. I'm way out here. My God, October sixth, and yeah, I just haven't gotten around to it. But I'm gonna say Tampa because I like them more. So Tampa.
2: I mean. AJ's looking at you confused but I feel like that's the best answer possible. That's the kind of the reason I said I hope both teams lose cuz I just don't like either. I think we've we yeah, gone
0: to that in the episode anyway, but
2: yeah. <laughs> um so I guess the cherry on the Sunday question just before we tag out. Um a lot of people are a lot of people are talking about the depth of this draft or not. Um a lot of people have said that it's one of the deeper drafts in a long time. A lot of people have said that after the top 20 it kind of fizzles out and it's a lot of hype Um, just for the, just for fun. I thought I'd ask this question because I I, kind of have my own idea, but would you consider this to be a draft that would be deep within the first two rounds in comparison to what you've seen over the last five years? Uh,
3: No, I would say that it's deep through like the top 22. Like that's kind of where it is. Like it's well above average in the top 22. And then after that, you know not so much uh, my draft my draft rank has 82 players on it and i wanted to cut it off at 54 so that should give you an idea of my thoughts on the depth of this of this draft like i just it doesn't really it doesn't really excite me outside of those top 22 guys and those top 22 guys could all hit and be great players um and outperform their draft draft position but later on not as exciting
2: that's kind of my idea that's kind of my idea. That's it's what I've been telling a lot of people. Uh, in Montreal, they have three second round picks, 47, 48, and now 56 thanks to Arizona. Um, yeah. So this is, uh, this is actually in the sweet spot before things kind of taper off, which is kind of comforting for me because I, I have a couple of guys in that area as well that I like, and then it kind of ends. Like, I had a serious difficult time doing a top 62 beyond 55, to be completely honest. After that, it became a total crapshoot. So... I tend to agree. All right, well, man, we grilled we grilled you for an hour. That's that's a quite an extensive amount of discussion. I thank you so much uh, for for coming on. I'm gonna let AJ tag this well, again, one
0: out. again, Mitchell, thank you so much for the gift of your time and also the insight and wisdom. I'm just like as always. I'm just like sitting here, just like taking it all in, just because it's like whoa. I know nothing (laughs) and so I got I'm privileged to say that because like that means I can learn something new every day and I've learned way more than I expected today so thank you so much Mitch Mitch Brown is a freelance hockey analyst whose work appears in the finest of publications and again you can check that out most of it's at Elite Prospects Springside you can check all of his work also on Twitter Mitch L. Brown and of course EliteProspects.com. that's where you can get the 2020 NHL draft guide produced by them and you can sign up for it today for $9 US a month and get access to a wealth of knowledge for your draft pool also throw a bid a couple of bucks on his patreon man did you hear all that knowledge come on you need to support them more man support his work over there and again mitch thank you so much for joining us here today on the hockey flow
3: thank you so much for having me on guys it was a great time i'd love to come back
0: was that another great addition to the hockey flow well tell your friends all about it go tell everyone about how amazing mitch brown is his insight into the game is fantastic in any case i hope you enjoyed this we'll be back next week with more and of course you can always chirp adam and marco on twitter marco can be found at the hockey expert and adam can be found at ReallyAdamB. i i'm aj Quintero. we'll catch you guys gals and non-binary pals next week